Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hi, my name is Drew Walters, and I am a CA3 at the University of Kentucky. On this podcast, I'm going to discuss the recognition and treatment of intraoperative bronchospasm and laryngospasm. It is important to note that often both of these interoperative events can be mitigated with early recognition and treatment. However, they can also quickly escalate into true anesthetic emergencies. In both these scenarios, it is vital to quickly notify the surgeons and OR staff and call for additional help. While I will discuss these interventions in a stepwise process, often multiple tasks are being performed at once or in rapid succession, and therefore additional hands and minds are often needed. First, I will discuss intraoperative bronchospasm. Bronchospasm is a reflex constriction of bronchial smooth muscles, which can lead to obstruction of airflow. Most often, it occurs during induction of anesthesia with airway manipulation, but may also occur during emergence and extubation, or really any period intraoperatively where there is inadequate anesthesia. There is a higher incidence in patients with a history of reactive airway disease, but it may also occur in any patient. Other risk factors include a history of smoking and recent upper respiratory tract infections. So what are the signs of intraoperative bronchospasm? You may hear the anesthesia machine start to alarm, and you quickly notice increased peak airway pressures with no change in plateau pressures. This is because bronchospasm increases airway resistance but does not change pulmonary compliance. You also note decreased tidal volumes. As you, look at the cap, as you look at capnography, you will, note, you will notice increase in tidal. I'm going to uh, restart that. So what are the signs of intraoperative bronchospasm? You will notice increase... Messed up again. So what are the signs... So what are the signs of intraoperative bronchospasm? You will notice increased peak airway pressures with no change in plateau pressures. This is because bronchospasm increases airway resistance but does not change pulmonary compliance. You will also notice decreased tidal volumes. As you take a look at your capnogram, you will see increased entitled CO2 and an upsloping phase 3 of the capnogram. This is kind of the uh, classic obstructive pattern sometimes referred to as a shark's fin. With manual bag ventilation, you will note difficulty moving air from the increased resistance. On examination, you will hear bilateral wheezing with auscultation. However, severe bronchospasm can cause complete airway obstruction, and you may therefore appreciate no breath sounds whatsoever. Finally, you will see um, potentially decreased oxygen saturations. Upon recognition of bronchospasm, immediately increase your FiO2 and your flows. I'm going to start over again. Upon recognition of bronchospasm, you want to immediately increase your FiO2 to 100% with high flows and notify the OR team to cease stimulation if possible. 
Turn up the dial on your volatile anesthetic to deepen your anesthesia, noting that your inhaled agents are bronchodilators, and hand, and hand ventilate to assess lung compliance. Remember, with bronchospasm, it will be difficult to move air past the obstruction. Therefore, you should also deepen with an IV anesthetic. Often, propofol is going to be the most readily available and is a perfectly acceptable agent to do this. But you may also consider using ketamine, as, as not only will it deepen your anesthetic, but also has the added benefit of being a bronchodilator. When switching the patient back to the ventilator, you want to decrease your IDE ratio because these patients need an adequate time for exhalation, um, as, this is a, as this is a obstructive physiology. Note, if at any time during treatment the patient becomes hypotensive, this could be secondary to air trapping with increased intrathoracic pressures, which are going to decrease your preload and thus cause hypotension. In order to relieve, consider temporarily disconnecting the circuit to allow an exhalation of the trapped air. After deepening the anesthetic, give albuterol, a beta-2 agonist, via multiple puffs somewhere in the order of 8 to 10 through the endotracheal tube. 8 to 10 puffs are necessary to prevent rainout in the tube and ensure albuterol gets all the way down into the airways. After giving albuterol, we want to reassess to see if the patient has improved. Mild bronchospasms will often subside with removal of the causative irritant, deepening the anesthesia, and albuterol. However, with more severe bronchospasms, the previous steps may be insufficient. At this point, you will want to give IV epinephrine. In these more severe bronchospasms, inhaled beta-2 agonists are unable to be delivered to the constricted airways and will be ineffective. So this is why we need uh, IV epinephrine. Remember, epinephrine's interaction with receptors is dose-dependent, and at lower doses, the beta-adrenergic effects dominate, and of course, our goal here is to stimulate beta-2 receptors to achieve bronchodilation. You want to start with 10 micrograms for adults and 1 to 2 micrograms per kilogram for children, and titrate as necessary. Often, IV epinephrine will be the definitive treatment, and bronchospasm will succeed. Rarely, a patient may not respond completely to epinephrine. For refractory bronchospasm, consider IV magnesium. Bolused over 20 minutes and given uh, a max dose of 2 grams. While the, mag while the mechanism for magnesium-induced bronchodilation is not completely understood, it is thought that magnesium antagonizes calcium release and thus blocks calcium-induced smooth muscle contraction. That sums up the treatment of intraoperative bronchospasm. I do want to make the point that bronchospasm um, does not always occur by itself. Uh, it may... Uh, pause. After deepening... I'm going to start over again. After deepening the anesthetic, give albuterol beta-2 agonists via multiple puffs somewhere in the order of 8 to 10 puffs through the endotracheal tube. 8 to 10 puffs are necessary to prevent rain out in the tube and ensure that the albuterol gets down into the airways. After giving albuterol, you will want to reassess to see if the patient has improved. Mild bronchospasms will often subside with the removal of the causative irritant, deepening the anesthesia, and albuterol. However, with more severe bronchospasms, the previous steps may be insufficient. At this point, the next step should be to give IV epinephrine. In more severe bronchospasms, inhaled beta-2 agonists are unable to be delivered to the constricted airways and will be ineffective. 
Remember, epinephrine's interactions with receptors is dose-dependent, and at lower doses, the beta-adrenergic effects dominate, and of course our goal here is to stimulate the beta-2 receptors to achieve bronchodilation. Start with 10, 10 micrograms for adults and 1 to 2 micrograms per kilogram for children, and titrate as necessary. Often, IV epinephrine will be the definitive treatment and the bronchospasm will subside. Rarely, patients may not respond completely to epinephrine. For refractory bronchospasm, consider IV magnesium. Bolus over 20 minutes at a max dose of 2 grams. While the mechanism for magnesium-induced bronchodilation is not completely understood, it is thought that magnesium antagonizes calcium release and thus blocks the calcium-induced smooth muscle contraction. That sums up the treatment of intraoperative bronchospasm. I do want to point out that bronchospasm does not always occur independently and may be secondary to an anaphylactic reaction. Anaphylaxis, therefore, should always be considered in patients with intraoperative bronchospasm during this process. You should keep in mind to monitor for cutaneous signs such as urticarial rashes or angioedema or hypotension and tachycardia. Now I'd like to move on to a discussion of laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is a glottic closure secondary to reflex constriction of the laryngeal muscles. I'm going to start over. Next, I want to discuss laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is a glottic closure. Restart. Next, I want to discuss laryngospasm. Laryngospasm is a glottic closure secondary to reflex constriction of the laryngeal muscles. The incidence is greater in the pediatric, pediatric population, but is still very possible in adults. It is a feared complication in pediatrics because of their higher oxygen consumption and lower FRC, which leads to early desaturation. Thus, prompt recognition is essential. Laryngospasm can be partial or complete. Most often, it occurs from stimuli, such as manipulation of the airway, blood or secretions, or pain, when there is an inadequate depth of anesthesia, and therefore is most often seen during intubation and extubation. Risk factors include recent or current upper respiratory tract infection, reactive airway disease, and is more prone to happen during ENT or oral procedures, obviously because there's more airway manipulation, um, but also because these patients are more likely to have blood and secretions that may serve as a trigger. It is important to understand the mechanism of laryngospasm, plus it often shows up on examinations. The internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve provides sensation to the entire larynx above the glottis and thus is the afferent limb of the laryngospasm reflex. The efferent limb is the recurrent laryngeal nerve which, as you recall, supplies motor to all intrinsic laryngeal muscles except the cricothyroid muscle, which is supplied by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. The primary adducting, ADD ducting muscles of the vocal cord responsible for the... I'm going to restart. It is important to understand the mechanism of laryngospasm, and it often shows up on examinations. The internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve provides a sensation to the entire larynx above the glottis and thus is the afferent limb of the laryngospasm reflex. 
the efferent limb is the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which, as you recall, supplies motor to all intrinsic laryngeal muscles except the cricothyroid muscle, which is supplied by the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. The primary adducting, ADD ducting, muscle of the vocal cords responsible for laryngospasm are the lateral cricoarytenoid and the transverse arytenoid muscles. So what will you see if a laryngospasm is occurring intraoperatively? Basically, you will note a patient making large respiratory effort with little to no movement of air. Trying to... I'm going to start over. So what will you see if an intraoperative laryngospasm occurs? Basically, you are noting large respiratory effort with little to no movement of air. This may present with sternal retractions, accessory muscle use, or in pediatrics, paradoxical chest movement and nasal flaring. Inspiratory strider may be noted if this is a partial obstruction, or there will be silence if it is a complete obstruction. You will also see loss or reduced end-tidal CO2, and eventually, eventually desaturation, potentially bradycardia, and cyanosis. Once you recognize that a laryngospasm is taking place, you want to immediately increase your FiO2 to 100%, notify the OR team to cease all stimulating activities, and, manu and manually ventilate uh, to assess... Let's start over. Once a laryngospasm has been recognized, you want to increase your FiO2 to 100% and notify the OR team to cease all stimulation, manually ventilate to assess for movement of air, and apply a chin lift and jaw thrust with CPAP. With the jaw thrust, pressure should be applied to the posterior... <clears throat> I'm going to start over. Once laryngospasm has been recognized, you want to immediately increase your FiO2 to 100% and notify the OR team to cease all stimulation. Manually, manually ventilate to assess for air movement and apply a chin lift and jaw thrust with CPAP. With the jaw thrust, pressure should be applied posterior to the ascending ramus of the mandible and anterior to the mastoid process. This is sometime refer sometimes referred to as the laryngospasm notch or Lawson's point. The idea here is it creates a painful stimuli that can break the spasm. While applying chin lift and jaw thrust, IV access should be established if, there has, if it hasn't already been established, for example, during a pediatric mastic induction. Often, these maneuvers alone will break the laryngospasm, particularly if it's a partial obstruction. However, if the laryngospasm does persist, you want to deepen the anesthetic by giving... I'm going to start over. Once the laryngospasm has been recognized, you want to quickly increase your FiO2 to 100% and notify the OR team to cease all stimulation. Manually ventilate the patient to assess for air movement and apply a chin lift and jaw thrust with CPAP. With the jaw thrust, pressure should be applied posterior to the ascending ramus of the mandible and anterior to the mastoid process. This is sometimes referred to as Larson's point or the laryngospasm notch. The idea here is it, it creates a painful stimulus that can break the spasm. While applying chin lift and jaw thrust, IV access should be established if there isn't already an IV in place, for example, during a pediatric mask induction. Often, these maneuvers alone will break a, a, a laryngospasm, particularly if it's only a partial obstruction. 
However, if the, the laryngospasm persists, you want to deepen anesthesia by giving an IV propofol bolus and increasing your inhaled agent while continuing to maintain jaw thrust and CPAP. If deepening the anesthesia fails to break the spasm, you should then give succinylcholine 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. Some sources suggest smaller doses in the order of 0.1 milligrams per kilogram IV. I'm going to start over. Once you recognize a laryngospasm, you should immediately increase your FiO2 to 100%. Notify the OR team to cease all stimulation and, and manually ventilate the patient to assess for movement of air. Apply chin lift and jaw thrust with CPAP. With the jaw thrust, pressure should be applied to the post... <laughs> Start over. Once a laryngospasm has been recognized, you want to immediately increase your FiO2 to 100% and notify the OR team to cease all stimulation. Manually ventilate to assess... For movement of air and apply chin lift and jaw thrust with CPAP. With the jaw thrust, pressure should be applied posterior to the ascending ramus of the mandible and anterior to the mastoid process. This is sometimes referred to as Larson's point or the laryngospasm notch. The idea here is it creates a pa painful stimuli that can break the spasm. While applying chin lift and jaw thrust, IV access should be established if there isn't already an IV in place, such as during a pediatric mask induction. Often these maneuvers alone will break a laryngospasm, particularly if it's a partial obstruction. However, if laryngospasm persists, you want to deepen the anesthesia by giving an IV propofol bolus and increasing the inhaled agent while continuing the jaw thrust and CPAP. If deepening the anesthetic fails to break the spasm, you should then give um, IV succinylcholine at a dose of 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. Some sources suggest smaller doses, like 0.1 to 1 milligram per kilogram IV, are equally as effective. If the patient did not have IV access at this point, remember that you can give succinylcholine intramuscularly at doses of 2 to 4 milligrams per kilogram. After this, consider atropine at, zero point, at point zero 0.02 milligrams per kilogram IV or 2 to 4 milligrams per kilogram IM to prevent bradycardia after giving succinylcholine, particularly in pediatrics. Obviously, the muscle relaxation with succinylcholine is going to be the definitive treatment and will break the spasm. However, if oxygen saturations do not improve after the laryngospasm has been broken, consider intubating the patient to allow time to recover. You must be aware and monitor for the potential of negative pressure pulmonary edema after a laryngospasm. This occurs secondary to negative intrathoracic pressure on a closed airway. This would present with decreased O2 saturations and, the, and pink frothy secretions. That covers this review of bronchospasm and laryngospasm. I hope you found this helpful. Thank you for taking the time to, to listen. You must be aware and monitor for the potential of negative pressure pulmonary edema after a laryngospasm. This occurs secondary to negative intrathoracic pressure on a closed airway. It would present with decreased O2 saturations and pink frothy secretions. That covers this review of bronchospasm and laryngospasm. 
I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you found this helpful. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.